0: The last disputed issue regarding angels is the question, what the heck is going on in Genesis chapter 6? Okay? Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. In order to be efficient with time, I'm going to talk to you, and I'm not going to let you talk back to me on this one. <laughs> I think, I think I will probably answer your questions by the time I get through this. Okay? And if you have questions left, come up and ask, ask me about class, about it after class. Okay, let me read the passage. <clears throat> now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. okay. What is going on here? There are basically four views. The first view is that the sons of God were men of the godly line of Seth, and they married ungodly women of Cain's line. Now, in my opinion, this view is an attempt to escape what the passage seems to be saying which is that angels and women cohabited and produced offspring. And I admire the people who came up with this uh, this idea because they recognize that the idea of angels and women cohabiting and pr- producing offspring is very difficult to explain. But I don't think that this fits the evidence of Scripture. And I don't know why the men of Seth's line would all be godly and the women of Cain's line would all be ungodly. Okay? I just don't think that this This is a valiant attempt, but I don't think it works. Okay? The second idea is that this is kings or nobles of pagan nations marrying human women. Now, the advantage of this view is that in the ancient world, kings or nobles, you know, powerful rulers, called themselves sons of God. They considered themselves to be sons of the gods. And there we're talking about gods with a small g. The problem with this is you have to ask yourself, why would the offspring of such a union be an unusual kind of person? And why would God be upset about it? I mean, this is just the normal course of human affairs. So that one seems to have weaknesses. The third view is that the sons of God are fallen angels and they're marrying human women and they are reproducing sexually with them and they are producing some kind of exalted human being that has unusual powers. That seems to be what the text is saying on the face of it. But you say, how can an angel reproduce with a human being? It doesn't seem to make sense because we're told that the angels don't reproduce. Okay? This is the one that seems to make the most sense of the text, but seems to be the most theologically impossible. Now, I believe that the correct view is a joining of this and this. I believe that the sons of God spoken of here are human rulers who were indwelt by demons by choice, They sought supernatural powers in occult ways, were indwelt by demons, and then they took large numbers of wives and they reproduced as much as they could, and the offspring of those unions were human, but they were humans who were produced by demonically indwelt fathers. And somehow the outcome was some kind of special... People. Now, let me tell you why I hold this view. I hold this, first of all, because it seems to make sense of what the text is saying. The idea that these are sons of God fits both pagan theology that kings are sons of God, but also biblical terminology that sons of God refers to angels. It's got to be fallen angels because good angels would never do this because they know they're not supposed to. Okay? Secondly, In Genesis 3.15, God said that the seed of the woman would strike the head of the seed of Satan. Okay? And that would lead to the defeat of Satan. Now, go down a little farther in your Bible in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of God. This is the genealogy of Noah. Listen to the next phrase. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. It doesn't say perfect in his generation. It has nothing to do with what kind of man he was among the people whom he lived in his time. That phrase generations is translated in other places. Now this is what became of, or some of your Bibles say, this is the toledote of, this is the offspring of. It, it, the word generations there refers to genetic um, descent. Uh, what I think it's saying is that Noah was one of the human beings who had not been polluted by this intermingling of demonized men and ordinary women. Now, I think Satan wanted to pollute the human race so much that there would be no human being on the earth who could be said to be the seed of the woman, but not the seed of Satan. And if he had done that, then he would prevent God from fulfilling his promise that the seed of the woman would destroy the seed of Satan. Can you see it? Now, I made this up myself, okay? I don't think you'll find it in a book anywhere. Now, this idea I did not make up. But the idea that this statement, Noah was perfect in his generations, means that he's one who had not been polluted by this forbidden kind of sexual reproduction. That's my original idea. Now, it's probably wacky, Okay, I'm just telling you that so you don't go look for it somewhere. Or you don't tell somebody else and say it's true, okay? This is just my idea, but if that's true, it helps you to see why God took Noah and his daughters and their husbands, who presumably were also not polluted by this, wiped out the human race and started over. How come we have later? Okay, good question. How come we have giants later? Possibly because one of those husbands Had been infected. Okay? And it's interesting, as you go through scripture, it seems that God actually makes efforts to have those giants wiped out. You know? So, anyway, that's my wacky idea on this. Am I going to allow discussion? (laughs) All right, Andrew. Hit me. Mm hmm. Well, it is though. It, it means they are the mighty men of old. It's it's not a when they use the when a modern translation translator uses the word hero, we think good guy. It really means the powerful men, the supermen, the superheroes, the you know megamen. Make it fast, Andrew. we got to move on. Okay, Saul was chosen because he was really tall. He was the first yeah. neighbor of his time. What mm-hmm. if the rulers of that time were chosen because they were big? And No doubt they were. And maybe that's why they became the There's something... I don't think that'll explain it, Andrew. There's something unusual going on here that God absolutely abhors, and he abhors it so much, that he decides to wipe the slate clean and get rid of everybody in the whole race except for a subset of them. the so Yeah. Okay. I apologize to those of you on the tape, both for my cookie and the fact that I didn't repeat the observation. Okay. Now, right? What's that? The word Nephilim. Nephilim. I think so, but honestly, I don't remember off the top of my head, so don't quote me on that. Okay. Excuse me. Let's move on to our discussion of eschatology. Okay? All right. In our last hour, we discussed the biblical covenants, the expectations that those covenants lay out, and we worked through the argument and basically said... The things that God promised that he has not yet done, he must do in the future because he is faithful. Now, this isn't so much us holding God's feet to the fire. That's not what we're doing. We're saying because God is faithful, he can be relied upon to do what he said he will do. And his past performance has demonstrated his faithfulness, hasn't it? has demonstrated his faithfulness to the literal promises that he's made. Therefore, we expect him to be faithful to the literal promises that he's made that he has not yet fulfilled. Now, the question that we're going to discuss tonight is what happens now that Israel has lost her kingdom? Now, some of you have seen this before. Some of you haven't. This is a timeline of the nation of Israel and her kingdom and the things that happened when she lost her kingdom basically in 722 God sent the Assyrians in to judge the northern kingdom for their persistent idolatry in 586 the Babylonians acting as God's instrument of judgment destroyed the city of Jerusalem, burned the temple took the Israelites out of their land, and since that day, there has never been a king in the line of David reigning over the people of Israel in the land of Israel, exerting the authority bestowed by God. And yet we know that God promised in the Davidic covenant, which we looked at last week, that a day will come in the future in which the reign of a descendant of David over the people of Israel in the land of Israel will be established and from that moment forward, it will never end. Okay? Now, we live in a period of time when that has not yet been fulfilled. We argued last week that the only system of eschatology that provides an opportunity for that promise to be fulfilled is premillennialism. What I want to do tonight is work through what Scripture tells us about the kingdom of Messiah that bears on this question, okay? So, turn with me to, well, you don't need to turn there, really. Just look at, look at the screen. This very well-known passage from Isaiah chapter 9 that we read at Christmas every year and except for the very first phrase has absolutely nothing to do with Christmas. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now listen to the next sentence and think about the Davidic covenant as I read it. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with, justice, with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now can you see how this is nothing but a prediction of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Doesn't it come out and slap you in the face? Look at that statement. To, to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. This even anticipated, back when the kingdom was still in existence, the end of the kingdom, and the fact that the kingdom wouldn't exist for a while, and then Messiah would come back and establish the kingdom, and from that point forward, forever and ever, it would never be interrupted. Is that not cool? Now, we read this at Christmas, and we sort of allegorize it in our heads. Okay? But this is about the millennial reign of Jesus Christ as king over the nation of Israel and empire over the and emperor over the earth you see it okay and I've just put second Samuel down there notice he said and your house and your kingdom will be established forever before you your throne shall be established forever it's the same thing as this did you ever notice that before it's shocking isn't it we're not going to read it now but if you if you read the passages I put up on the screen last week Isaiah 11 is all about Messiah's future kingdom ruled by the root of Jesse which is just the descendant of David that was promised in the Davidic covenant who we know is the Lord Jesus Christ after he comes back okay Isaiah 61, 4-7 this is just part of Isaiah 64 61 And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and vinedressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor, and instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Now, this is another prediction of the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Notice that in this prediction, there are still Jews and Gentiles, right? They still exist in the future. Now, if it were true that the Jews lost their place in God's program, and if the phrase Gentiles meant Christians or something like that, these two would not be coexisting side by side, would they? Now, this, you remember in Jeremiah 31 where it says, well, it says in Jeremiah 31 they shall all know the Lord from the greatest of them to the least. And then there's another passage that says Gentiles shall come up and say, Tell us who God is. I can't remember where that passage is off the top of my head. You know the one I'm talking about? Take us to the temple of the Lord, tell us who God is? That's what this is talking about. Another prediction of Messiah's future kingdom. Okay, Isaiah 65, verses 20 to 25. Let's read this one really quickly. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now the point is, if you only live to be a hundred, you will either be thought to have died as a baby, or you will have died because you were a sinner. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat, which is what happened to the Israelites as a result of the captivity. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Now, what is he saying? He's saying that the Israelites will live long and fruitful lives, but they will do what? What do you do at the end of a long and fruitful life? you die. Okay? This is talking about mortality in Messiah's millennial kingdom. They shall not labor in vain nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. Okay? There's going to be reproduction in the millennial kingdom. Now, look at that look at that last statement somebody asked me last week if in the millennium the children of those who start out in the millennial kingdom as believers, whether their children will be born believers. And I said no. Remember? What does this say? It says they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord. Isn't that what that's picturing? Okay? And their offspring with them. Now, There's a lot to study here, and I don't want to jump into it all right now, but if you look at that passage, what do you see? In Messiah's future kingdom, there's going to be birth. There's going to be death. There's going to be reproduction. There's going to be the enjoyment of life. There's also going to be sin. All those things are going to be there because Christ's future millennial kingdom is going to take place on this earth and at least some of the subjects of it, not the resurrected ones are going to be mortals, just like us. And we'll see how this works out later. Okay? But do you see, at least get a glimpse of what I'm talking about? I don't claim to have proved all this to you yet, by any means. But the evidence is there, and we'll look at it again. Okay, Jeremiah 33, if you read that chapter, it's a prediction of the restoration of the people of Israel and Judah to their land in fulfillment of the Palestinian, Davidic, and New Covenants. If you read that passage, I I hope it just jumped out and slapped you because it's really clear. Here's just an excerpt from it. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. Who's that? That's Christ. Christ. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she shall shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. For thus says the Lord. Now here again is the Davidic covenant. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice continually. Now again, those of you who heard me preach last Sunday, we talked about the prediction in the book of Ezekiel of a future millennial temple in which there will be sacrifices. Here it's referred to also in the book of Jeremiah. Okay? Bob? I know it's being referred to here and there, but what's the purpose of them in, Of sacrifices of the millennial I think, well... Think of the cross as the focal point of time. The sacrifices before it looked forward to it, and I believe educated people so they could understand the cross when it happened. The sacrifices in the future, I think, will look back to it in the same way that the Lord's table does. Now, the interesting question, and I don't know the answer to this because I haven't studied Ezekiel 40-48 to 48 recently, I'm not sure whether the sacrifices that are listed there include sacrifices for sin or not they might just be fellowship and worship sacrifices i don't know the answer to that question but even if they do include sacrifices for sin i think the purpose will be memorial to look back to the cross just as the other ones look forward to the cross that's the best explanation i can come up with but but they're there you know yeah. however they work okay Can I go until 20 of? I promise I'll stop on the dot. Is that okay? All right. We're going to talk now about evidence for the Messianic kingdom in the New Testament. You obviously know that the kingdom is talked about a lot in the Gospels. The Lord Jesus spoke of it often. It's spoken of in the book of Acts. It's spoken of in the book of Revelation. Now, I did a little plot with my computer program looking at how often the word kingdom in the New Testament there are scads of occurrences of it in the Gospels and Acts. There are virtually none in the epistles and there are quite a few in the book of Revelation. There's a reason for that. And I believe the reason is that the church is not the kingdom. Okay? Now let's... And when I say that, I'm saying that let, let, let me qualify that statement. I'm saying that the church is not the kingdom which was predicted in the Old Testament. Okay, The church is not the millennial kingdom. Christ is not reigning over the church today in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Okay, Now, there is a sense in which Christ is reigning today. I don't deny that for a moment. He is God, and he is reigning over all creation. But he is not reigning in the role that was predicted in the Davidic covenant. That awaits his return at the second coming. Okay? What I want to try to do is convince you of that by working through a number of passages. Here's the question. How is the kingdom in the New Testament to be understood? Now, This question has been answered in two fundamentally different ways. The first answer is that the kingdom means and always meant the literal kingdom of Israel to the nation of Israel in the covenants and prophesied in the Old Testament prophets. That's one way this question has been answered. The other way that it's been answered is that the kingdom is some kind of spiritual concept not meant to be taken literally. The church in some way has displaced, succeeded, or replaced Israel, and the kingdom is, in some way, the church. Now, this is basically the difference, one of the differences, between dispensational or premillennial theology in the first case and covenant or amillennial theology in the second case, broadly speaking. Okay?
1: <clears throat>
0: now, some theologians have mixed these answers, arguing that the church is the kingdom, but Israel still retains the future according to the covenants. One guy who did that, if any of you have ever heard of him, was Gordon Ladd. Another group of people who are doing something like this are the so-called progressive dispensationalists. And you may know that there's a big battle, if you will, going on at DTS over this issue, has been for years. OK? In my opinion, this mixture is confused, confusing, and destructive to sound hermeneutical principles. I think you really can only consistently be on one side of this fence. I don't think you can straddle it without talking out of two sides of your mouth. Okay? But my purpose really isn't to argue that. Okay. Now, there are a number of key New Testament <coughs> passages that indicate that the kingdom is still future. Okay? One of them is at the Annunciation in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33. The angel is speaking to Mary, and he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, at face value, unless you're going to redefine the terms, that does sound like a prediction of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, doesn't it? Okay, how about the ascension? Go to Acts chapter 1. Jesus spends 40 days with the disciples. Verse 3. Being seen by them during 40 days and speaking to them of the things pertaining to the... What's it say? Kingdom of God, okay? They had, through a period of 40 days, on and off instruction from the Lord Jesus concerning the kingdom of God. Now, verse... And he said to them, You boneheads, I've been teaching you for 40 days, and you still don't understand that the kingdom is a spiritual concept. That's not what he said, did he? He said, It's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He doesn't tell them that there's not going to be a kingdom, does he? He just says, I'm not going to tell you when I'm going to do it. Okay, the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15. I couldn't find out a way way to make these all start with A. We had the Annunciation and the Ascension. I just couldn't (laughs) figure it out here. Okay, now this is interesting. Starting with verse 14. You know what the Jerusalem Council was about? It was about the discussion, do Gentile converts need to be compelled to obey the regulations of Moses in order to be Christians? And they decided what? No, they don't. Now, in the process of this discussion, James says, verse 14, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Now, right there, he's starting to say it. He doesn't say, visited the Gentiles to turn them into Jews. He doesn't say, visit the Gentiles to take them to replace the Jews. And then he goes on and he says, And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as, just as it is written. And then he quotes from the, from the prophecy of Amos. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. What's the tabernacle of David which has fallen down? Is it? It's not. It's the dynasty. It's the house, okay? It's the house. It's basically David's dynasty which has fallen down in the sense of what? There's no king reigning over Israel. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Now this is what James is doing. The question has been, does a Gentile, in order to be saved, have to become a Jew? And the answer is that even in the Old Testament, God predicted that saved Jews and saved Gentiles would live side by side in, Christ's, in Messiah's future millennial kingdom. If Gentiles can be saved as Gentiles and retain their identity as Gentiles, then who are we to say that they must become Jews now? Doesn't make any sense. Now, incidentally, what does this do? This lends support to the idea that there's going to be a future kingdom, doesn't it? Because the fallen tabernacle of David is going to be raised up. The empty house, the deserted land, the deported people will be brought back together and the descendant of David will rule over the people of Israel in the land of Israel, exercising the authority delegated upon him by God. In fulfillment of the covenants. See it? Okay. Acts fourteen. Acts fourteen twenty-two. What is that? <laughs> that's a misprint. Skip that. I don't know what that is. Okay. Go to second. I, I got something wrong there. Go to Second Peter because that's the same passage we were just looking at. Does it? Oh, oh. Okay, Tommy, thank you. The passage says through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, okay? Now the okay, the point of putting that in there is that it's a statement effectively that we haven't entered the kingdom yet. Okay? We are not in the kingdom of God in the sense of the kingdom predicted in the Old Testament, but we will all enter it, won't we? We will all be resurrected and we will all be subjects to that kingdom. Thank you, Tommy. Second uh, Peter, I was looking at chapter fifteen. Second Peter Chapter one after the call to grow in grace and in faith and in godliness, Peter says in second Peter chapter one verses ten and eleven, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, again, this amounts incidentally to a statement that we haven't entered the kingdom yet, have we? What are we doing right now? We're waiting. We're. What else? We're waiting. We are? We're working. Good. And we're praying thy kingdom come. Exactly. And as we work and we pray thy kingdom come, we're building up something in heaven. What's it called? Reward. We're building up treasure in heaven. And when he says, if you do these things, you will be supplied with an abundant entrance in the kingdom. What is he saying? He's saying the more godly you live, the greater the reward that will be waiting for you when you enter the kingdom. On that day, when we join with Christ, at the beginning of his millennial reign, he will hand us our rewards and he will say, you know, go rule five cities or go street sweep the streets or, you know, go fix the telephone lines, but you belong to me. Is like in Matthew 13. Um, okay, I'm going to give it to you in two sentences, and we'll probably come back to it. Okay, my understanding, and that I don't know if I've listed those. No, I haven't listed them here. My understanding of the parables in Matthew 13 is based upon the fact that it was immediately before Matthew 13 and Matthew 12 that the religious leaders pronounced their rejection of Jesus. I believe the parables in Matthew 13 tell what's going to happen between now and the time when the king comes back to establish the kingdom. I, I disagree with Dr. P on that. Okay? It's the one thing I disagree with him on. I don't think there's a mystery form of the kingdom. I think, I think that Matthew 13 tells you the mysteries of the kingdom unrevealed facts about the time between the first coming and the second coming, but I don't think it's a description of a certain form of the kingdom that exists in there. I think it's a description of the nature of the time between Christ's departure and his return at the second coming, okay? No doubt. mustard seed, the tree that tears. Yep. And then they'll be separated at the end of the age. Well, I, 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 think I, don't, I think what we need to say is that Jesus is revealing what will happen between the time of his departure and the time of his return. Now those are truths related to the kingdom because they describe the sequence of events that will lead up to the establishment of the kingdom. We might call it um, we might call it uh, precedents to the kingdom or the process that leads to the kingdom or something like that. Because it was. Well, okay. Our time is short, and we will address those issues. Now, Tommy, you're right on top of it. In fact, you've anticipated some of the things that I put in here. Okay? Let me just get through this slide, and it'll be 20 of in 40 seconds, and we'll quit. Okay, question. If the kingdom is still future, and if Israel has no kingdom today, how will God fulfill his promises to, to Israel? The answer is that God himself will establish David's kingdom according to Old Testament and New Testament prophecy. And what we're going to do is we'll spend the rest of this course examining prophecies of the establishment of Christ's reign and the events that lead to and follow that establishment. Okay, Now, if you will, Scripture basically focuses beside the creation and the exodus Scripture focuses basically on two enormous events. What are they? The first coming and the second coming. And essentially, all of prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled already relates to events that lead up to the second coming and events that follow it. But the key event is the return of Christ. And really, that's what the debate is all about, isn't it? Everybody who's a Bible-believing Christian agrees that Christ is coming back. The question is, how do these events that cluster around that moment in time go together in a sensible way that fulfills what God said he would do? And that's really what we're going to be talking about. Okay? I think we better... Back. What, Becca? At one point you mentioned, uh, a really little long time ago, okay. you mentioned that at some point in the future you were going to talk about how the Roman Empire hasn't ended. Are you going to still get to that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the question was, will we talk about the idea that the Roman Empire has not yet ended? And yes, we will. Um, Let's stop now, because if we don't stop, we'll go forever, and I'm going to wear you guys out. Okay? Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, our time goes so quickly. Thank you, Father, that there is so much to think about, and thank you that you have given us the dignity of seeing a bit of your plan ahead of time. Father, grant us both patience and enthusiasm and eagerness to understand it better. Grant us also, Father, the trust in you to know that although we may not understand all the details, we know that you will make it work out right. Please fill us with a desire to worship you in spirit and in truth, to be living sacrifices to you in the days ahead. We pray this for your glory and ask that you would do it by your spirit. Amen.